We see that this whole society, man, exists and rests upon workers, and that this whole motherfucking society controlled by this ruling clique is parasitic, voyeuristic, cannibalistic, and is sucking and destroying, man, the life of motherfucking workers, and we have to stop it because it's evil. You're listening to a rankandfile.ca podcast. Rankandfile.ca is a website dedicated to providing labor news and analysis for rebuilding trade unions and the workers' movement from below. Hi there, this is Gerard DeTrillio. Welcome to RankandFile.ca's first podcast of 2017. This week, our West Coast correspondent, Daniel Sege, interviews Michael Brunson, recording secretary at the Chicago Teachers Union, and Sonia Singh of Labor Notes. Uh, they were at an event put on by the BCGEU uh, entitled Lessons from the Chicago Teachers Strike. Uh, Daniel has an interview with both of them, and then we'll be listening to the uh, speeches that they gave at the event. Now, here's Daniel. Um, so first off, just uh, can you just give me a, intro, intro, a brief introduction of um, of yourself, Michael Brunson, um, and the Chicago Teachers Union. What what is the union? Just the, the bare bones first. Who am I? Uh, my name is Michael Brunson. I'm uh, one of the four officers of the Chicago Teachers Union. I'm part of uh, Karen Lewis's administration. We've been in office since uh, J- July of 2010. I am a re- recording secretary. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, and Sonia Singh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, yourself, Labor Notes, um, and uh, your role in this event tonight? Sure, so I work at Labor Notes as a, a staff writer, organizer. I'm uh, involved in both uh, training but also reporting at Labor Notes. So Labor Notes uh, publishes a magazine every month. Online articles, but also does a lot of support to both unions and worker centers that are looking at their kind of organizing strategy and building uh, different kinds of tactics to uh, <clears throat> take on fights both in the workplace, uh, but also uh, be looking at sort of how to uh, mobilize across the labor movement. So the event tonight uh, is sponsored by the BCGEU, and they are really interested in. Uh, in the current context in BC, what can be learned from the amazing fights that the Chicago Teachers Union has led uh, to take on the corporatization of education and uh, school closings at the same time as building really deep community alliances. So the event tonight is uh, sort of reflecting on the lessons of the CTU and so great to have Michael here uh, who's been at the center of that work. So speaking of um, of that, of what's going on in uh, Chicago, um, just reviewing the literature on the fights that Chicago Teachers Union uh, have spearheaded, um, can you can you give me first the context of um, what was going on prior to 2010? I mean, obviously it's still ongoing. So you've got Rahm Emanuel, you've got a situation in Chicago where the mayor had, seems to have even more power over education than uh, in a lot of other cities. Uh, my understanding is that Chicago has kind of been like uh, the test ground for a lot of uh, privatization of education. Um, can you tell me what what were the challenges, what were the issues that teachers uh, and, uh, and students in poor communities were facing at that time? Well, Rahm Emanuel didn't really come on the scene until about 2011. Uh, prior to 2010, 
And we did not come in office until uh, July of 2010. Prior to that, we had a, a, in a program in Chicago called Renaissance 2010, which basically involved um, shutting down a number of schools in our city. And as a matter of fact, uh, that was also responsible for bringing us together, this present administration. Our, our present administration comes out of a, um, a caucus by the name of CORE, Caucus of Rank, which stands C-O-R-E, which stands for Caucus of Rank and File Educators. And what happened was during those school closings, um, there was not, we did not feel as though there was an adequate amount of pushback coming from our uh, union administration at that time. So a group of teachers got together, a group of educators got together and started uh, figuring out what they could do, what we, what they could do to stop, uh, stop, you know, at least put their voices out there and stop so much of the damage that was happening with all the, the school closings. And it started out with uh, teachers going to the Board of Education hearings and speaking out and exposing what was really going on. Um, this group of teachers also got together as a study group and they uh, studied a book um, by the name of The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which gave us a, a broader context for what was really happening, why it was happening not just in Chicago but in other places. And from that, um, from the study group and from the actions that were, were uh, being taking, taken on the ground, we sort of like uh, started ramping up and drawing in more and more uh, people to our cause. Now, one thing that's important to understand is that the leaders of um, the current administration, we all have backgrounds in, in organizing, in working with you know um, other members and working with the community also. Like for instance, myself, uh, before I became a member of four, I was uh, active in uh, a movement for local school councils, which is a, uh, a structure in the city of Chicago where um, uh, within each school you have parents and community members and teachers on a local governing board of the, uh, of the school. And I, I was working with a group that was or, organizing them on the south side of Chicago. Um, we have a vice president that was uh, fighting against uh, school closing and the militarization of his school. We have uh, we had another um, officer, our financial secretary. She was fighting against uh, school closings, and we have our leader Karen Lewis, who was on a number of uh, uh, educational committees and, and was re really um, conversant in you know the rules and regulations of education. So um, we all had a background that not only gave us skills with speaking to educational issues and organizing our members, but we had contacts with the community. And that's what is different about what we did, because we knew the importance of uh, the labor movement working in conjunction with the community. Yeah, so I, I want to expand on that, because I was really interested in that distinction between uh, the caucus of rank and file educators 
in the previous administration, UPC, what is it, United? United Progressive uh, Caucus. Yeah, so the previous administration, my understanding, was very hierarchical, it wasn't uh, uh, very membership-led or engaged in what the membership was thinking or what, what it was interested in. Uh, it seemed like uh, it wasn't even really taking a strong stance on things like school closures. Um, when CORE won in 2010, when the new slate won in 2010, can you, can you explain, um, you, you've kind of suggested that there's a, a different understanding, right, of, about privatization, reading Naomi Klein's book and things like that, but what were the structural differences? Um, how exactly did CORE uh, create a more horizontal or a grassroots um, party or union? Well, one of the key differences, and, and I, I really can't speak to a lot of what the previous administration, what their structure was, um, because I was not part of that. Um, I have, myself, I've only been teaching since about 2003, so I was just getting my feet wet with a lot of things uh, when I came in contact with CORE. Um, what really drew me to CORE was this emphasis on democracy with this ball with a small d. And that is, uh, I can say that that is one of the distinguishing features that we did have. We were committed to um, being a member-driven union and uh, giving a, more of a voice to our members. Also, we are strongly committed to democracy, which uh, falls in with, you know, that's part of being a member-driven union. We're committed to transparency and accountability. That would be not transparency not only with the Chicago Public Schools, but with the leadership of our uh, union as, as well. And uh, you better believe our members hold us to uh, pledges such as that. We were also um, motivated by, and, and the things that I'm telling you are like the five basic principles of CORE. Um, publicly funded public education, and that, um, you know, that goes back to our battle against the charterization and privatization of our school system um, and also um, a strong contract. We, we wanted a strong contract because we, you know, our motto is that uh, teaching conditions are learning conditions. So we push, we had organized around those uh, five principal things. And uh, the part of it that I, I, I mentioned before that I, I didn't emphasize in the principles was also that we had those strong community bonds with the parents and the community because we felt though, we, we, we came into an atmosphere of teacher bashing, national teacher bashing, where um, our the opposition was, was portraying teachers as just being these uh, greedy public workers that all they cared about were high salaries and uh, lax working conditions without being held accountable and it, you know it was really a, a farce because first of all no one goes into teaching to get rich you go into teaching uh, from love of the craft a dedication to knowledge and most of all love of your students okay so um, it, it was really obscene the way that teachers were being portrayed and we had to change that image and it, it, it was image that we changed not the reality because we, the reality is what I stated 
most teachers are really dedicated to their students and to their craft. So that was a big push. We had, um, but it, that was a big battle because one thing that sort of like gives that a lot of energy is that we are constrained by law to only be able to bargain and strike where, when I say strike, withhold our labor, which is our ultimate weapon, over certain things. And those things are uh, salary and compensation. Right. But the things that really contribute to our um, to a positive work environment and a positive learning environment, like small class sizes, like having um, adequate personnel in a school, not just teachers, but uh, clinicians, social workers, uh, teachers assistants, all of that, the, the, the whole uh, gamut of uh, educators that go into comprise an educational institution, um, having fair work, you know, good fair work hours, time to prepare for your class, and uh, adequate pro professional development, all of those things, having the necessary resources in the school, something, something as simple as a library. We needed to fight for those things too, but you could not come out and, and, and fight for those in a contract battle. So that was a challenge. That was a challenge. Uh, for us to put those things in the forefront and also it was important for us to put them in the forefront uh, for our working conditions but it's also important to put them in the forefront to um, combat that false image of the greedy teacher that has nothing, no connection it to, work, to the students. It seemed like there was a lot of support for the teachers. I, I want to talk mm -hmm. more about the strike in a, in a minute. So Sonia, um, with labor notes, uh, labor notes uh, covered teachers strike uh, and has continued to cover the work of the, the union um, and it consistently um, labor notes uh, amplifies the voices of more grassroots and democratic unions and kind of pushes unions to be uh, more receptive receptive to membership and take real political stances to, I mean, uh, summarizing um, can you tell me what uh, what what were the commendable aspects of uh, the Chicago Teachers Union um, in light of the, the fact that even Karen Lewis has said that uh, the contract that was signed in 2012 was still an austerity contract, right? It wasn't perfect just because of the conditions, right? There were a lot of a lot of challenges, right? Um, so what what are what are some uh, things that we can draw? Uh, other unions can draw. The labor movement can draw from the teachers union. Well, I think labor notes holds up the Chicago Teachers Union uh, as uh, a model because of a lot of you know, what Michael has, has touched on, that uh, the union wasn't afraid to put forward really bold demands to have really high expectations and to have those demands be completely linked with community demands. So it wasn't an either or, like teachers, what teachers are fighting for is something different than what the community needs. No, the, the vision of uh, what Chicago students at what Chicago students deserve, what a public education system looks like. One, that that's something that you know we want to encourage more, not just public sector unions and, and teachers unions, but to be thinking sort of what, uh, what what's a way to be looking at social movement unionism, to use Michael's term. But I think the other piece that, that the Chicago Teachers Union is so inspiring, uh, such an inspiring example, is the, the way that uh, in order to build that fight and to lead that fight and to have 
members engaged to the extent that they that they have been or you know were at the, in, in the strike and, and have continued to be that there was so much groundwork that had to happen and uh, Labor Notes wrote the book, the book How to Jumpstart Your Union to kind of show that this is not something that, it's not a, a magic kind of formula that <laughs> that the CTU uh, was only able to tap into that, that really any union and also, you know, worker centers are, are using these building blocks to try to figure out how do we connect more with members that may not feel engaged in the union right now because they don't see the union fighting over issues that matter to them. Uh, so the, the book How to Jumpstart Your Union was kind of a, we, we wanted it to be like a how-to manual of what does that look like in our latest book, um, Secrets of a Successful Organizer, breaks it down in even more steps of, you know, what does it look like to have organizing conversations. Um, you know, any organizer that's doing new organizing um, knows how important that is to really be able to connect with people, hear what their concerns are, and move that into action. But some often we forget about doing that once uh, the, the union is in place, but it's still so important to have people connected and uh, waging fights on a day-to-day -day basis that help make the union visible uh, and have and union activity be collective activity, not just sort of uh, uh, the kinds of servicing or legal actions that, that can just, you know, are of course so important, but can make the union visible. Uh, and I think right now, more than ever, those lessons are so important. Um, and, and I think that uh, coming back to kind of also the community collaborations, that what is what does it look like to be leading a fight in Chicago that then has a ripple effect across the city, but across the country, um, and I come from a worker center background. I've worked at the Workers Action Center for many years, and, and just seeing how, uh, when community allies and unions can come together, the campaigns become so much stronger. That campaigns that fight for community demands or for non-union uh, and low-wage worker demands, like the Fight for 15 uh, here in BC or in Ontario, uh, that that has a trickle-down effect on collective bargaining and the power that union members have as well. So I think a lot of those lessons are things that uh, that you know, Labor Notes has really wanted to hold up uh, from the from uh, from the CTO. So Labor Notes yeah publishes this kind of uh, toolkit, right? These uh, these t concrete tactics that organizers can take um, to democratize unions, for lack of a better term, right? Um, what I'm interested in is, okay, so there are things unions can do, right, to make things better, simply. Why, A, why aren't all unions doing that or interested in doing that? Uh, we saw with the previous the administration before CORE, uh, uh, as I mentioned, they were hierarchical, not, not exactly democratic, not exactly responsive to the needs and interests of the membership. Um, they actively, my understanding is that they actively uh, tried to um, repress uh, elements of core. Uh, there'd be things like they would. Uh, I, I, my understanding is that they would uh, work with uh, school officials to keep core members from organizing on school grounds. Uh, you know, we were right. It was a campaign. It was a political campaign for elections, and so you know there were things that were going on. I, you know, I, I really. To be honest, while we were running the campaign, I was just focusing on getting to as many schools as possible and then talking to as many people as possible because I knew we had a better message. And, and, and I'm one of those people that knew that we were going to win that election anyway because 
we were in tune with the times. We uh, we had our fingers on the pulse of what was actually going on, the changes that need to be made. And, you know, that goes back to our, uh, our actually studying the situation, knowing that we had to come up with a new type of uh, uh, approach if not just our administration was going to be successful, but the labor movement was going to be successful, and this battle within education was going to be successful. And that's why I say it was so important for us to involve the community, the parents and the community in what we were doing when we were going for the contract battle. And even now, you know, um, we are in our program, I guess you can call, call it social justice unionism. I per personally call it social movement unionism because there are a lot of things going on uh, within not just the political environment but the cultural environment of the uh, United States right now and across the world. And we're in touch with those things. We, we feel as though, look, um, uh, you have Black Lives Matter, you have Standing Rock, you have the uh, LGBTQ what's going on with all of that. These also encompass our students. So, and you know, immigration, oh, that's a really big thing too. Uh, so if we're gonna be standing up for our students and we're gonna be standing up for the community and, and show that we're all in solidarity, we have to be in touch with these social movements also. And that's something that we have been doing. And yeah, um, maybe there are unions that aren't doing that now because there's this old model that we refer to as business unionism where you think all you're supposed to do is focus on your contract and your salaries and, and your working conditions and all of that. But um, I feel as though in today's world, you cannot remain in the silo like that because there are too, too many moving pieces out here. And especially now in the United States, we have a big challenge. Well, we've always had a challenge, so I, I don't see this as, um, you know, being, you know, the recent developments, political developments in the United States is being that much of a disaster and, and having people want to move to Canada, okay? But um, we know that we have a, a, a big challenge ahead of us and we know that there's a lot of work to do and I think everyone should know that, that these gra grassroots movements and social movements, we have, we have to really start turning up the heat if we want to live in a, in a democratic and just society. So this question is for both of you, or either one of you. Um, the social movement unionism, I, I can see how it um, strengthened the Chicago teachers' strike, right? So there was like an, an overwhelming number of, uh, I forget the numbers, but 90-something percent of the membership voted in favor of the strike, and so many people were out there wearing the red t-shirts and everything, and that in part was probably, not just because of the things teachers were facing, but because they felt the support from various community groups and organizations, right? And that these other organizations helped inform, because the, the struggles of the teachers, the privatization, all that stuff, was connected with some other broader economic issues in Chicago, right? So that's social movement unionism. How, how will uh, the teachers union um, help ensure uh, progress for other issues. Uh, you're talking about Standing Rock, LGBTQ issues, Black Lives Matter, uh, whatever other struggles, uh, communities uh, of, of, uh, of students are facing. How, how exactly does the teachers union stand in solidarity and ensure those, those gains? 
is it a matter of saying, hey, in our next contract, we want, we, in, on, in addition well, to our I, benefits? Let me talk in generalities, because I, I don't, I'm not one to reveal strategies and all of that, but um, I would say that the teachers' union is part of, you know, the wider context is the whole labor union movement also. And the labor union movement, I think, plays a key part in social movements. It has in the past, and it, it will be playing a key part in contemporary movements. I, I, you know, so um, there are a lot that we can do to support the movements that are going on. I mean, we have passed resolutions within our union that we uh, we actually support these groups. Um, you know, um, we have had rallies uh, where some of them have come to the stage and spoke with us. Um, there are a number of things, but like I said, I'm not one to go, really go into details on strategies or things like that. Maybe using an example of immigrant workers mm -hmm. that we know are going to be massively under attack under the Trump administration, along with um, you know, Muslim communities and many other communities. And so just thinking about, I think teachers unions are a great example. We've seen how teachers in, in LA have worked to make sure that there's a sanctuary uh, policy for schools, which I know is something that I think is also in place here in Vancouver um, in Toronto was something that I uh, that folks organize around with teachers unions for sure. So there's models out there of thinking about how can we use our role within the labor movement to ensure that that uh, our community, we're standing up together with them. <clears throat> and I think there's lots of examples like that where uh, unions that have a lot of immigrant members, you know, it's not like we are, it's like the community and the union, that there's sort of a, a false separation, that this is actually, that it's, it's union members who are also going to be under attack. Uh, and so looking at how to strengthen contract language uh, for worker centers, how to be really supporting people uh, to know their rights, to be able to uh, have strategies that address raids if that happens again, um, and to be building sanctuary policies across cities and, and um, towns. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that where the labor movement can't afford to be in a silo, that there has to be uh, broad strategies that are collective strategies that where we're not retreating, that we're fighting together. And I think, um, again, like coming back to the CTU's example, like what would that really look like for, you know, that whether from indigenous land defense fights or Black Lives Matter, that for sure there are unions that are joining and coalitions that support it, but what would like deep relationships, what would that look like? To, and, and how is this a moment now that that can be sparked by what is the, <laughs> the very intense reality that we're moving into? Now here's the speech that Michael Brunson gave at the Lessons from the Chicago Teachers Strike event. So all of us had a background um, of fighting, of not only organizing and agitating, but we had deep connections also to the community. And we brought that with us into the office. Now, I came together with the rest of them because we had, there was a um, coalition formed of educators, parents, and community. We called it the grassroots education movement. 
and from being part of that, i came in contact with this group of teachers called core caucus of rank and file educators now what's interesting is that this group had come together because we had a we had you know our union was not really as progressive and militant as it was supposed to be and this was a time where they were shutting down our schools the members had gone to our union and said look what can we do we have to stop this and they were telling us it was inevitable so they started doing the work on their own they started going out to the school board meetings and raising hell they started doing demonstrations they started talking to other teachers they started pushing back and then they came together and they formed a reading group they came together over a book that sort of put it all together because you have to have this large concept of you know to put everything in context that helps so much to develop a strategy and develop what you know your you know your narratives your stories and everything and that book happened to be written by one of your fellow controversies Naomi Klein anybody know what it is there you go shock doctrine shock rock the shock doctrine pretty much explained the big picture to us about what neoliberalism was about how it worked how it had worked in the past what the program was and people were sitting up there studying that and saying hey this is what's going on with us it's not exactly the same but it's the same structure the same principles and everything so that's what brought us together and we continue to agitate to keep our schools from being closed and we continue to try to push the leadership of the union at that time they would not you know they wouldn't do anything so finally we decided like look we are going to run for office just like other people are other groups are going to run for office because an election came up and the rest is history so in July of 2010 a group of activists from CORE Caucus of Rank and File Educators took the helm of the Chicago Teacher Union and from the day we stepped in office there was intense opposition to everything that we were doing they wanted to ramp up the shutdown of schools and everything we had to face a lot but you know what brought me to CORE is something that I want to share with everyone here you have to have a plan and the plan that we had was the spirit the principles of the group that brought everyone together we were standing for about five things first of all we wanted a member driven union we wanted the union to be run from the bottom up rather than the top down and it was very important that our members had voices and we and even to this day we still listen to what our members have to say and take it into account and they hold us to account we wanted transparency and accountability not just from the Chicago public school system not just from the city but from the leadership of our own union that's another thing that holds us as leaders today to account to our members to our caucus to everyone we wanted education for all and that was extremely important because um, Chicago is an extremely segregated city 
Chicago is a city that has a range of uh, socioeconomic levels, and there are some that have any everything that they want, and there are some that have nothing at all, which is not fair. And we have to teach them all. And at the same time, there is this charter movement going on. I don't know if there's one here, but in the United States, there's a charter movement where they are trying to privatize our public education system. And the main problem with that is, if you have, these are corporations that are driving this. These are billionaires that are driving this. And they are going to enforce their ideology on our youth if they take over our public schools. Our public schools are the last bastion of democracy. And if we want to save our democracy, we feel like we have to save our public schools. We felt strongly that we, on that note, we wanted to defend publicly funded public education, and that once again goes back to the privatization of the schools. And then finally, we had to have a strong contract. Now, we have a strange rule in the city of Chicago where when it comes to bargaining our contract, because of the law, because it was put into the law, we can only bargain about salaries and compensation. We can't bargain about class size. We can't bargain about contractors taking away uh, you know, jobs from our members. We can't bargain about the fact that we don't have books in our classrooms. We don't have libraries in most of our schools. We don't have nurses. We don't have the resources. We can't bargain about any of those things. All we can talk about is money and benefits. And at the same time, when we came in, there was this meme going around about the greedy teacher, about teachers that really don't care about education. They don't care anything but about money. And they're not even really teaching the schools because this whole reform movement that we were against was supposedly something that was, was going to enhance the quality of education in our schools. At the same time, they're taking away everything. So go figure. But we had to turn that whole thing around and restore the dignity of education, educators and education. So that took a lot of work also. And a, a strong contract meant that, okay, we can't bargain about anything but money, and then you're going to turn around and tell us, talk about we're greedy teachers because all we talk about is money. we got to find a way to work around that. So we found a way to, when we bargain on our contract, we force them to have to talk about educational justice. And we did that by letting them know this is not just about us. We are actually educators who are in this game for the sake of our students, their parents, our community, the people that we serve. And that was extremely important for us. Now, um, I don't want to take up too much time with an introduction, but another thing that I want to bring up is that when we decided that we were going to you know, change the game, we put in a lot of research, we put in a lot of work, we did a lot of talking to our to fellow educators. And we came up with a blueprint. We published our vision of what public schools should look like. And you can find this online, and I'll just go over some of the things that we 
felt like every public school should have regardless of the socioeconomic background or the race of that student. All students deserve smaller class sizes. Anything wrong with that? <laughs> Any teachers in the room? What does it feel like to have 50, 60 kids in your classroom? <laughs> All of our students deserve a well-rounded curriculum. They had stripped our curriculum down to bare bones and it was always, it was just getting to be about teaching to the test. Art was removed. Physical education was removed. Yeah. You know, yeah. certain parts of history was, history just became ideology. That was a whole other thing. <laughs> okay, we wanted a well-rounded curriculum. We felt that our students deserved appropriate support services. We needed nurses and social workers in our schools. We did not have clinicians in our schools. And we were, our students were coming from areas where they were being traumatized by violence on a daily basis. And to that end, we felt that all of our students deserve social justice, social justice, and they deserve to be taught by professionals. Because that charter school movement that they were moving, bringing in, the average charter teacher stays there three years. And very seldom do you find one there that's even up to, uh, that goes up to five. So they were trying to deprofessionalize our teaching profession and turn us all into low-wage, unskilled workers, not professionals. There's nothing wrong with being a worker, but we were trained to be professional workers, and they wanted to take that away from us. And the most important thing was we were demanding that they give us a fully, that they give our public schools fully, that they be fully funded. Because the main hammer that they hit all of us with, and I'm sure that they're hitting you with the same thing, is that, is that they say that we don't have the money that it takes to run these schools adequately and give them all the resources that they need. And we say, you are lying. Because you're telling us you don't have money for schools, but at the same time, you have these high-priced developments that you're building. At the same time, you're imposing these re regressive tax schemes on our citizens in the city. At the same time, you have this financial center, center sitting in the middle of this city where there are thousands of financial transactions taking place every hour, and not one of them are being taxed. And every time I go and buy a loaf of bread, I got to pay taxes on it. You have money. There's money. The money is there. You just put it where you want to. And with that, you know, I, you know, I'll just kind of end and turn it on over to my colleague here, and um, I'll welcome any questions where I can go into details later. But thank you. Now here's Sonia Singh's speech from the Lessons of the Chicago Teacher Strike event. Is that? You know, Michael's describing uh, the CTU for many years was just an ordinary union, uh, like many unions in the United States and probably many in Canada too. And what core activists did, what teacher activists did in Chicago, any union activist can do. Um, and we've seen how the example that was set has had a ripple effect where uh, caucuses of teachers, um, but also teachers' unions across the states and cities, you know, from Newark to LA to St. Paul and Seattle have taken up similar kinds of fights um, and formed a network where rank and file teacher activists can share strategies and build together 
on a national level. Uh, and I'm happy to say that uh, being a Canadian but who's working in the States, that teachers from Canada are providing a ton of inspiration as well. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure many of you in this room were following the Quebec public sector general strikes that were happening last year, but I'm not sure how many of you heard about how teachers uh, were also striking as part of those general strikes, and parents, at the height of when those strikes were happening, were circling schools on the first of every month, uh, for forming a human chain in over 300 schools every month to say, we want to protect public education, we support our teachers. So those kinds of inspiring actions and, and tactics are trickling uh, all over the place. Um, Nova Scotia teachers won an unprecedented 96% strike vote in the fall this year. Uh, and of course, we can't forget this incredible legal victory that's been won in British Columbia that's going to have a huge precedent for the labor movement across the country. So I think we should give a round of applause. <laughs> that the attacks, not just on uh, public services, but on the labor movement as a whole, have been relentless. Uh, and as you know, in the United States, the worst is yet to come, that we are facing an incredible crisis that may look like national right-to-work legislation, not just for the public sector, uh, but possibly for the private sector as well. Uh, massive outsourcing and privatizing, uh, massive deportations, uh, ends of Obamacare, the list just goes on and on of what attacks are to come. So it's never been more important to think critically about organizing um, and what it is that, what are those basics that Stephanie mentioned that we have to come back to. Um, I wanted to just highlight two that I think, there's many that we can talk about, but to sum up two um, that Michael has sort of touched on, um, and the first is around getting organized in every workplace, so organizing where we are at a grassroots level. Uh, Michael didn't mention that before uh, the CTU, before CORE took office, the caucus at the CTU, there wasn't even an organizing department. So that was one of the first things that, that they set up. But I was shocked to hear that, at least at the beginning, I'm not sure if this has changed, there were five organizers who were hired. And each organizer was assigned 150 schools. So five organizers were 30,000 members across the city. So any of us in this room who are organizers imagining what does that look like to be organizing 150 schools as part of this process of building up towards a strike. And so of course you're not going to be able to do that on your own. What that meant is that people had to go into schools and recruit and identify leaders. Uh, to be figuring out who are the delegates, the sort of word for steward, who can get their coworkers motivated and engaged and be moving people into action. And that took a lot of training to think about how do you have an organizing conversation? How do you figure out what it is that people care about? And start small. We're not starting with massive demonstrations on day one. No, we're starting with if the, if the issue in this school is a bullying principle or a school that's threatened to be closed, we're going to start there. And I think when you saw that multiplied in school across the city, that where people could build confidence by taking on collectively small fights through escalating tactics, uh, that then that was what, those were the basic ingredients that probably many of us in this room know, we've tested it out, that we have to start where people are at. 
Um, I wanted to just mention our book that we recently wrote, Secrets of a Successful Organizer, because it really lays out what are some of those building blocks? How do you have an organizing conversation? Uh, and some of the stories that we've collected in the book and, and stories that uh, through my work at Labor Notes, I have found the most inspiring are stories where it's not even in a unionized workplace that people are trying to figure these things out. Um, so I come from a worker-centered background, uh, and I think one of the things that we've definitely seen is, is how when you don't have uh, the ability to form a union or you are working on the margins of the labor market, how different kinds of community organizing uh, structures and uh, ways to connect the labor movement are so important. And I know that there is a rich history of farm worker organizing in BC and domestic worker organizing. Uh, so we probably have a lot of experience just in this room to draw from. Um, I wanted to share one example that is just 30 minutes south of the border here in Bellingham, Washington, that is an independent uh, migrant farm worker union that formed, uh, that just won an election this fall. This fall. Um, even though in Washington State, farm workers do not have the right to organize and don't have the right to strike. But this group of mainly indigenous uh, farm workers from Mexico started by, again, small, building up strength, figuring out what it was that they could do step by step, and built towards wildcat strikes. So just last year alone, they had four work stoppages. Um, at the same time, we're building community alliances across uh, the country, and I think also here in British Columbia, and called a boycott of their employer and the major client that bought from their employer, Driscoll's. Uh, and through uh, this process, they finally were able to get their employer to sit down and say, fine, we're going to recognize your union and have a union election. So a major feat, just like the Chicago Teachers Union, they didn't accept the legal framework that they were operating in. Um, but that season, there were 100 new farm workers that had come uh, because it's migrant seasonal work. And so all of a sudden, they had an election. How did they, how were they going to win? And it's the same ingredients, that building house meeting by house meeting, worker by worker, thinking about what it, where people are at and how we move them. Um, and they won that election with an overwhelming majority and now are one of the first independent farm worker unions uh, in the states uh, right now. So that's an incredible victory just half an hour from here. And I think I could talk about many more that are inspiring, uh, that are sort of building on these same lessons, but I wanted to just focus on the other point that you know, Michael again has touched on around the, the power of very deep community alliance building. And I think what we see from the Chicago Teachers Union is that it was not community demands and teachers' demands. Um, that these were deeply integrated, that they were two sides of the same coin, um, and that that didn't just happen overnight either. It was rooted in long-standing community relationships. Um, and I know that we all probably, again, have tastes of what that can look like or seeds of how that could start. Uh, in Ontario, at the Workers' Action Center, I was working on the minimum wage campaign when it was a $14 minimum wage campaign. Uh, now it's the campaign for $15 in fairness and, and part of a, a national uh, wave of these campaigns that I know, again, uh, the fight for 15 here in BC has been taking off. 
But through that campaign, I definitely could see firsthand how for many rank-and-file union activists and labor councils, it was one of the first times that they were connecting with low-wage workers and non-union workers in their community working on a common demand that was going to benefit everybody uh, and building those skills of how is it that we uh, go out there, uh, what, what does it look like to do a petition drive on a Saturday? How is it that we can go uh, and where are the low-wage workers in our community? Where can we build relationships that we might not have before? How do we, uh, we were organizing actions on, at that time, the 14th of every month. What is it when we never organized an action outside of Tim Hortons before? Uh, what does that look like? What are the kind of tools and resources that we need? And in the process, I think it's been incredible to see how that push for raising the floor for all workers has led to increased bargaining power for unionized workers. So uh, again, looking, there's examples from grocery store workers in Ontario to a really inspiring wave of, uh, again, coordinated strikes in Quebec from uh, workers in retirement homes and nursing homes there who struck with the demand for $15. They said, we're going out on an unlimited strike in 32 homes until the employer agrees to a $15 minimum wage. And the confidence to put that kind of bold demand out there, many people were earning $10, $11 per hour. The nurses uh, and uh, personal support workers that I spoke to said they would never have felt that confident if these community movements weren't helping to raise expectations. And that's all for this episode. Just a reminder that rankandfile.ca is funded by its readers, so any support you could give us is greatly appreciated. You can donate at rankandfile.ca. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to a rankandfile.ca podcast. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.